This is the ASI Podcast, episode 30 of season 3. My name is Russ Shaw. Eight years of the ASI Podcast. Talking about sex, talking about motivation, some psychology, some theology. Yes, eight years all over the English-speaking world. The ASI Podcast. Thanks for listening to some Volbeat. Yes, The Sinner's Show, indeed, ASI Podcast. My name is Russ Shaw, I'm your host, Russ at ASI247.org, that's org, not .com, not .net, no, .org. (laughs) The website, of course, is ASI247.org, and... Yes, it's been eight years. This is the eighth year anniversary of the podcast. Got a few things I wanted to talk about, a few uh, messages, emails. Most folks lately have been uh, conversing with me via Facebook or Twitter, uh, followers on Twitter, direct message, and I have like a handful of likes on Facebook, which is strange. Like, I don't know, Facebook's a little more personal or something. Like, I'm not sure I want to be friends with the sex addict uh, talk show host guy on the podcast thing. <laughs> but relax, it's just me, it's Meet Russ Shaw is the thing, I'm coach, right? It's like a, I don't know, you say, uh, it's a life coach thing, right? I don't know. But anyway, I have like 35 or 32 likes, I think, on Facebook. The show has been downloaded. Over the last eight years, the show has been downloaded almost. It's approaching 300,000 downloads. So over a quarter million downloads um, of the podcast, which is amazing that, that you folks listen and then return back and listen again. Um, and... It's not like I'm trying to win some popularity contest, so it's just odd, right? I don't know. Maybe Facebook is going the way of MySpace. Who knows? So right now on the iTunes web page thing, right, if you look up addiction on iTunes, you click on the ASI podcast, you'll see a graphic, and it says what ASI.org, right, what recovery is and is not. And it's really something I want to talk about in the show today and to talk about ASI as a body of work and to do a little uh, deconstruct and reconstruct, if you will, right? Tearing something down as to maybe redefine in your mind uh, what this word recovery means. This is something I've had to do, and really what the show is, and has been for eight years, is a kind of personal theology slash psychology on my part, right? Um, Nadia Bowles-Weber is a new pastor that I've uh, has got my ear. A friend of mine turned me on to her. Um, had a, anyway, she wrote a book called Pastrix. Uh, the cranky, beautiful faith of a sinner and saint, and it's funny because the word pastrix is actually a term used by uh, Christian 
denominations and, and people in, in Christian leadership who do not recognize uh, female pastors. That's what she wrote. I guess it was somebody who criticized her or something. I thought I heard her talking about that. That one, that was one of their criticisms of her. They called her a pastrix, and, and that's what she named the book. <laughs> so uh, that was pretty funny. Anyway, um, I go to, you know, I don't agree with everything Nadia Bowles Weber says. All right, so save your emails. I don't agree with everything Pastor Mark Driscoll says either. I go to Mars Hill Church in Seattle. I love Pastor Mark. I don't agree with everything he says. I don't agree with everything any man on this planet or woman says besides Jesus, all right? Where these folks interact with the Bible, where these folks talk about their faith and how they love Jesus, that's what hits me, all right? Heaven is not a place for good people. Heaven is a place for people who love God, all right? Loving God changes us from the inside out. But, uh, yeah, if your goal is to become a good person, then uh, you might reevaluate who you worship. That's something I've, I've learned along the way. But, uh, yes, Nadia Bowles-Weber is <laughs> cranky, beautiful faith of a sinner and saint. And uh, amen to the title. I go to a church that doesn't recognize female pastors or elders. You know, it's something we're kind of criticized for. We have female deacons that... You know, they'll lead Bible studies or community groups, and it's kind of the same thing. So, I, I don't know. I'm not, commu- I'm not criticizing my church. All right, I'm a member of Mars Hill Church. I'm surprised they would have me as a member, to be honest, uh, doing this podcast and stuff. I've had some folks, uh, pastors, that are in the church that wrote books and stuff on on the show as guests. Uh, but, yeah, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe that's just me. It's like a Groucho Marx thing. I don't know if I... If I trust an institution that would have me as a member. <laughs> so uh, I struggle with some of the... She talks a lot about liturgy and religion. Um, you've heard me criticize religion in the past. Um, maybe it's not really... And she's kind of waking me up to some of that criticism of religion. That maybe it's not religion. Maybe it's when ritual becomes routine. And when routine becomes self-righteousness because we make ourselves do it or something, then we can look down on other people. That's what I have an issue with. And she's uh, listening to some of her stuff has really brought me back to some of the passion that I really had for this ministry in the beginning. And she talks about Lutheran. She's a six foot one, uh, covered in tattoos, uh, swears like a truck driver, Lutheran pastor. And uh, something she talks about is, is in her book is first-person theology. Like, this book is first-person theology. This is how, when we tell our story to someone else, when someone asks you your testimony, to use a kind of religious word, someone asks you, what's your story, man? Um, and you tell that story, what you're doing is going into a bit of, theology and psychology. Now the word psychology, and I and I, I like to point this out a lot recently, the word psychology is from the Greek and it actually means the study of the soul. And as a, a guy who studies theology, as a theologian, I am going to um, work to take that word back. 
<laughs> a little bit, all right? Um, I talked about in the beginning of the shows that I'm not a theologian. I said that before a lot of times. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a pastor, right? I'm not a professional anything, and I'm still not. But I know a lot more than I did then. And something that, that Nadia said that I totally agree with is that everyone is a first-person theologian, all right? In other words, we all have a relationship with God in some way or form. Even if you don't believe in God, like that's your relationship with God. Well, I just don't believe he exists. And it's funny to me that I, I realize that most atheists and most really militant atheists just seem to be really angry at God, right? Like, if you just don't believe that he, he exists, then that's cool. Just go about your business. But when you get all mad about it, it's like, let me tell you how God doesn't exist. And let me tell you how much I hate him. You know, it's like I, I'm, I'm struggling to get that. Um, but you see what I mean, right? That, that's the first person theology. Telling your story. This is a lot of doing this podcast is my own story and addressing emails from folks and bouncing it off of my own um, things that I've learned and some of my own experience. There has been some real progress since I've started the show, not just on the topic of addiction, but more specifically sexual addiction, that people are starting to realize that it is a real thing, that sexual addiction isn't just something that people made up as an excuse to do what they want to do. No, it's actually real. Um, Patrick Carnes wrote his book, Out of the Shadows, back in the 80s. And um, he actually wrote it, from what I've heard, he wrote it in the 70s, but no one would publish it. So it took until the 80s for um, it to get published. And since then, there's been this ongoing debate whether sexual addiction is even real or not. And I shared a, a few shows ago some information from the Weatherspoon Institute that gathered a bunch of research on sexual addiction and that, yeah, the scientific community is starting to come to, is starting to wake up and smell the smelling salts as to this thing being an actual debilitating um, addiction, especially pornography addiction when it comes to internet pornography. There's been a lot of research on that lately. So, that's good news. This is from GQ Magazine, or Gentleman's Quarterly Magazine, all right? This is not from uh, Christianity Today Magazine, okay? This is GQ. GQ's been around for a long time. It's a men's magazine, um, and it's not, right, there's not always been stories in there that the Christian community would agree with, all right? Or the religious community, if you want to use that word. So, GQ released this story about a week ago, and, and I thought it was, wow, like, this is GQ. It's called, uh, 10 Reasons Why You Should Quit Watching Porn by Scott Christian of GQ Magazine. With the ambiguity and easy access of porn these days, it shouldn't come as a surprise that people are beginning to study the effects of it on our sex lives. According to a website called projectno.com, 420 million web pages are dedicated to porn. Meaning, the non-porn internet roughly consists of, well, Wikipedia. Uh, scientists at Cambridge University recently studied the brain's scans of porn addicts. 
and found that they looked a lot like those of drug addicts. With such an inexhaustible supply of porn at our disposal, there is a growing concern that it is the beginning of a negative effect on our brains, our relationships, and even our bodies. Beyond, of course, your mother's idle threats of blindness and hairy palms. A recent survey of Reddit community called NoFab, which is committed to abstaining from porn and masturbation, has helped researchers open the door to a better understanding of the effects of pornography on our lives. While none of the results are conclusive, there are certainly some statistics that should, that should give a moment's pause. Here are some of the highlights of why it may be a good idea to stick to Netflix next time you open your laptop. Number one, for those addicted to porn, arousal actually declined with the same mate, while those who regularly found different mates were able to continue their arousal. It's known as the Coolidge effect, or the novelty-seeking behavior. Porn, after all, trains the viewer to expect consistent newness. One of five people is number two. One in five people who regularly watch porn admit to feeling controlled by their sexual desires. Number three, 12% of no-fabbers report watching five or more hours of internet pornography every week. 59% watch, report of watching four to 15 hours of porn every week. Almost, number four, almost 50% of those on NoFab have, been, have had sex in their lives, meaning there's only experience with intimacy is purely digital. Let me read that again, number four. Almost 50% of those on NoFab have never had sex in their lives, meaning their only experience with intimacy is purely digital. It's kind of a scary fact. Number five, 42% of male college students report to visiting porn sites regularly. 53% of nofabbers developed a regular porn habit between the ages of 12 and 14. An alarming 16% said they started watching it before the age of 12. Number seven, 64% report that their tastes in porn have become more extreme or deviant. That's 64%. And that's what I talk about in the show on how it's been, it, it just gets darker. Number eight, among 27 to 31 year olds on NoFab, 19% suffer from premature ejaculation. 25% are disinterested in sex with their partners. 31% have difficulty reaching orgasm and 34% experience erectile Dysfunction. This is some of the stuff I talked about on the early shows, talking about uh, some of this research from the Janus group on Viagra and sexual addiction, or them tying it to excessive masturbation when you're younger, right? You start to build this, um, what's it called in psychology? It's called reinforcement behavior like you can make yourself come in three minutes when you jerk off you start to reinforce the three minutes three minutes three minutes um you get married you get in a relationship and it's hard to break that pattern um Number nine, after committing to no masturbation or porn, 60% of those no-fabbers felt their sexual functions had improved. 
and 60, number 10, and 67% had an increased energy levels as well as productivity. They just felt better about themselves. So there it is, men. While the evidence may not be scientifically thorough, there's certain enough to suggest that porn has a negative impact on our lives. It might be a good time to give that overworked hand some rest or, at the very least, use it to dial a phone number of a real-life human woman and ask her out on a date. <laughs> That's good. GQ Magazine. It's interesting, you know, a mainline magazine like that, mainstream magazine like that, doing a, doing a story like that. It's important. Um, anyways, a few messages and emails recently, uh, people who are stuck and frustrated. And I've got a lot of these over the years. Um, I don't tend to read them on the show. I don't tend to read a lot of email. I tend to respond to it. I, I do read emails every so often with permission from the listener, but... Uh, more often than not, I like to keep your confidence and, uh, you know, not just expose your words to the whole world without you, right, agreeing to that and not putting people on the spot either. So that's why I do that. But anyway, uh, addressing some messages I got, not just email, but, you know, the Twitter messages and stuff like that. Folks very stubbornly stuck and very frustrated and, and asking where to start or where to start again. And that's a big part of it. Um, the frustration of, of a relapse, the frustration of a fall, the, the not knowing what to do just to get started. And the thing is, is whether you're just getting started now or it's been you know a few years, if you had a few weeks or a few months of victory and you relapsed, it's time to begin again, all right? And I, and I pray that if you're listening and that's you, that you're going to start today and this is going to be a new day. Every day is a brand new day. You get to take this thing on right now today. Are you going to let it dominate you? Are you going to let it own your life? Are you? Today, you have today. All right? Is it going to own you today? You can make a choice to say, no, it's not going to own me today. And then tomorrow has enough trouble, troubles of its own, right? It's a biblical metaphor there. There's these messages in the book of Genesis talking about manna, where God gives a manna to the Hebrews, right? And they're just hungry, and, the, and they try and hoard it and save it for the next day, and it just goes bad. So you, you get it for one day. Um, just, just be in today. Live in today. There's a difference between being, right, and, and, and living or having a plan or being alive, right? Just be. <laughs> so one of the things that we talk about in 12 steps, right? The 12-step um, groups will talk about one day at a time. It's a very important thing to remember. You have today, and you can take this thing on today. So the first thing I would say to somebody who's asking that question, where do I begin, is... Um, it's a biblical word, alright? This is going into some theology here. It's called repentance. Repentance is that we've sinned against God, and, right, there's a creator of the universe, there is an order to the way things are. The word sin is probably, you know, if you have some religion in your background, you may have a, you know, you think that that's shameful, bad, this word sin. Um, psychologists today will, will rename it disorder, right? Or dysfunction. 
Is it the thing we what we do bad? Yes, it's we're all sinners. We all are. We're all saints and sinners. If you're a Christian, you're a saint and a sinner, both at the same time. I know it's hard to imagine, but it's true. So, taking this thing on today means that now you start by the, an act of repentance, which means you get rid of any pornographic material that you have on your person or at your house right now. You do it now, or when you get home from work, if you're listening at work or to and from. You, you're going to get rid of your porn. You're going to delete it all off your device. You're going to delete it all off your computer. If you have any DVDs or anything like that, you just destroy it, right? Or just throw it in the garbage. I've done that before. One time, I threw my porn out the window of my van. I was just frustrated. I was angry. I threw it out the window of my van. A few weeks later, I actually pulled over to the spot where I had thrown it out and went looking for it. That's how messed up I was. True story. There's little videotapes. So, little videotapes. Let me not breeze over that because I, I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, I heard a statistic about the iPad. When the iPad came out, and you know, the, the weeks and months after the iPad's first release, internet pornography, the traffic on internet porn sites went up like between 5 and 9% or something like that. Because here was this little device that you could hide, right? You could take with you in the bathroom or in your car or to work. Uh, for me, this is before the iPad, this is the late 90s, my porn addiction in full bloom. I had a, a 8mm video camera. So what I would do is I'd take my 8mm video camera with the big flip-out screen, right? I got the one with the biggest freaking flip-out screen on it. I don't think pornography was why at the time, but that's it just happened to be what it was. So I have this camera, right, with a big 5-inch or 4-inch little flip-out screen on it. And I would hook my DVD player or my... VCR to this little high eight camera and I would record porno movies from the DVD to the the VCR tape or whatever onto this this device this 8mm camera and then it was mobile I could take it with me so that's what I meant by uh, the, the videotapes I actually took them and put them in cases and threw them out the window one of them was too wet and, and nasty and messed up, but one of them was in those little plastic cases that kind of seal up, you know, and it actually was playable again, and, and I and I used it again after a couple of weeks sitting out on the side of the freeway in the rain, and that's how messed up and, and addicted I was. But the truth is, when I threw the stuff out the window, it was out of a frustration with myself, it was, I was angry. But yes, it was, a, it was an act of getting it out. I wanted it away from me. I hated that this thing was controlling me. I, I was just, get, I'm done. This is sick and wrong. I don't want to do this anymore. So, I had to get good at beginning again. But also, I had to get good at going one layer or two layers beneath just the behavior modification up here on the surface, right? Behavior modification is great, but there needs to be some work done down in your psyche and even in your soul. 
quick metaphor. I, I've shared it on the show before, but I'll, it bears repeating. Um, I had a guy come look at my house for uh, sugar ants that I had in my house. These little black ants are called uh, odorous house ants. They're just really hard to get rid of. We'd kill them, we'd put traps and spray them, and they just kept coming back, man. So I, I talked to an exterminator customer of mine, friend of mine, and asked him what I should do. And he said, the problem with these ants, Russ, is there's multiple queens. And what will happen is anywhere there's moisture, like in your bathroom or in your kitchen or, you know, even in your basement or whatever, they'll, they'll have multiple queen ants in the same house. And these queen ants will keep continually giving birth to more and more of the ants that you see crawling around on the surface and I thought wow that's that's a good metaphor (laughs) reminded me of addiction and some of my work and readings studying addiction some of the stuff I've listened to some of the stuff I've learned I'm like wow yeah something under the surface giving birth and then I heard a quote by Saint Augustine who said uh, that sin you know the, the sin of pride is the mother sin that's giving birth to all the other sins that we see on the surface. Uh, Martin Luther said that uh, if you can obey the first two commandments and the Ten Commandments, that is that there is a God, right? But only worship me. There's one God. Not You don't get to make a God. That's two, right? You don't get to make up your own God and carve it out of wood or whatever, right? Those two commandments, the rest of them are easy. The rest of them are birthed out of disobeying those two commandments, right? And, and here's the thing about obedience. It's funny, this this company is some fashion company you see out there, kids wearing these t-shirts that say obey, right? I mean, that's what we, that's part of the human condition. We will obey something or someone. We will obey. You know, to say you're just this total rebel and you, you know, you're, don't obey, right? Um, anarchy, right? Whatever. No, you're not. <laughs> you obey whatever anarchy leader. There's anarchist groups here in the Seattle area. There's a lot of weird people around here. But that's one of the... There was, there was a news story about these guys came together and they met in a college and they had a, a meeting. I'm like, doesn't that defeat the whole purpose of what you stand for? Like, you're conforming to a group and you're you're organizing to meet at a certain place and time. <laughs> that's not anarchy, dude. So you see what I'm talking about, right? We will obey. So what are we obeying? Because if, it, if we just stop, you know, just throw out our porn and think that that's going to do it, it's not. It, it, that's not a big enough step. And that metaphor totally reminded me of my recovery. You know, I mean, having, oh, I'm never going to do this again. I'm, this is it. I'm done. Oh, I really believe in that. Going out a week later and then another ant comes to the surface, right? Another ant comes to the surface. Another relapse. You start to lose heart. And I totally get what it feels like to lose heart. So, begin again. But I'm going to um, challenge you to not do the same thing you did before, but to dig a little deeper. Maybe get a counselor. If you're a Christian, get a Christian counselor. All right, this may cost you some money. May have to, I don't know, deliver pizzas on the weekends or something. I, I don't know. Don't make excuses. 
to, you know, I mean, I know it's Christmas, it's, everybody's, uh, right? <laughs> but still, man, getting counseling for me was so incredibly helpful. Being in group with other people who struggled like I did, and we're all working towards not being the people we are in the group at that moment, right? Not being addicted, trying to see light at the end of the tunnel. That, is, that was another thing that was incredibly helpful. Starting to loosen up some of these things that were going on under the surface. Years and years of stubbornness going, I don't want to go to group with all those freaking addict people. Stand up and say, yeah, I'm an addict or whatever, right? Go to a Bible study. Seriously, like I got better things to do. It's boring. It's going to be stupid. And I just made all these excuses not to go and seek community and it just kept getting worse kept getting darker to the point where I I started seeing prostitutes it got progressively it, it just does it just gets progressively worse it's like that story said in GQ right it's true so again your future is going to be dependent on where your heart goes. That's truth. Um, as a Christian, as a guy who loves, believes in Jesus, I wasn't there in my addiction. I was, right? I didn't have much faith in, in a higher power, God, or anything like that. Um, if you're an atheist, I get that, right? If you're a militant atheist, like you got, you got more faith than most lukewarm Christian types that I know. <laughs> it takes a lot of faith. I was reading some of this material. There's a strange thing that's going on here in the States and in the UK where there's a, these atheist churches. There's like communities of atheists who get together and, right, like, I don't know, sing songs to no one. I, I don't know. But, <laughs> I kid. But I was reading some of their material and it was it was like... It was like evangelical, right? Like they want to evangelize what they believe on other people by denouncing religion, which I, I think is funny. Uh, and, and part of this is like there's a lot of really intellectually smart people that can have very little street smarts. Like some of these guys, like you read their stuff and it's like, aren't you doing the exact same thing that you criticize Christians for doing or Jews or Muslims, right? Like you're sitting there saying how well, how great your deal is. Like we're, you're being self-righteous. That's what you're doing. That's <laughs> what it is. It's self-righteousness. It's, you know, we got truth. We know ultimate truth. And our ultimate truth is that there is no God. And if you believe that there is, then you're an idiot. And, and, and let me tell you why, right? And then some of this stuff, talking about guilt and shame and the, oh yeah, believing in God just brings more guilt and shame. That's actually not true. That's why I'm a Christian and not in some of these other faiths. Um, the Bible actually says that worldly guilt or regret leads to death. It leads to despair. It leads to death. The Bible says that. A godly conviction on the heart, right? A godly guilt. Like, if you don't feel guilty about stuff, you're probably a sociopath. Like, it's okay, it's okay to feel guilty for doing bad if you've done bad. Like, if you don't, there's something wrong with you, right? 
you can't just say that, well, yeah, guilt and shame are horrible things. Um, if you do something bad there, again, right, you should feel bad. But it's where we go in that feeling bad that is a big part of this and it's what I wanted to talk about. It's part of the history of this podcast is flushing some of that out. That, that worldly grief or regret leads to death. But godly regret and grief it leads to life and it leads to conviction and it leads to repentance. In another book, uh, Romans, he talks about that, that repentance, it, it, the God's kindness, right, leads to repentance. Not God's shaming and condemning and telling you that you're a piece of garbage. God doesn't do that. That's the other guy. So when this atheist literature came out and said that, oh yeah, it's just guilt and shame, like, that's not true. I know that that's not true. And if you talk about being a Christian in a, in a college like Berkeley, right? If you dare to challenge your professors about your Christian faith, don't expect to get a real good grade. I think that's disgusting, self-righteous, and just as bad as, as some of the corruption that goes in in some of these churches. All right? Truth is, we're all sinful, jacked-up human beings. But what you put your faith in, um, that will direct your life. How you think about God, how you think about higher power, how you think about ultimate truth at the at the you know the bottom layer of who you are, how you think about ultimate truth, it will define your future. It will define your life. We all think about God, whether He exists or not, or is in our lives or not, or loves us or doesn't. We think about it, man. We 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 do, and I think that's part of the Creator. He's in our head a little bit. You ever hear that saying, that old saying, how do you sleep at night when you're doing bad stuff? Um, God pings our heart when everything's still. That's why I used to crank music all the time. <laughs> Try and drown, drown it out. Right? Still small voice. Um... But yes, I agree, guilt and shame, that kind of guilt and shame leads to death. In the garden, right, right at the beginning, right after the first sin happened that, that destroys and wrecks and fractures everything, God, you know, they, they're hiding themselves. Adam and Eve hide themselves. They're naked. They don't want God to see that they're naked, and they say that. And God's like, who told you you were naked? Like, that's not something that came from God. That kind of shame, about hiding, feeling, I don't want you to see me, right? We get that. I'm a very reluctant Christian because of the stuff that I heard growing up about how God's this mean bastard who's ready to punish me for the dirty thoughts in my head, that kind of thing. That was, that was my worldview of God growing up. I didn't hear about grace ever at all. Learning about grace had me realize that that's what, where love exists. And this metaphor of God being our father and, and us being his kids. And that religion, right, most of this kind of rule-based, you better be 
this kind of do these be good person right or you're going to hell God's sending you to hell like that kind of thinking um, is, is kind of like me looking at my kids and saying if you do these things then, then I'll love you something Pastor Mark Driscoll at, at my church talks about like giving, handing your kids a, a list of rules and saying if you can obey these then I'll love you the facts are that through grace, God does love us. And because he does love us, I'll obey. It's something that I've learned from, from Pastor Mark. And my kids were older when I started it. But starting to look at my kids and look them in the eye and saying, Who am I? They'd say, You're my dad. And what do I do? You love me. All right, so can you do what I asked you? Okay, you know. Pastor Mark talks about this story where he, he went through that with one of his sons. and He does this a lot and they've almost got this, all right, you know, they, they know it's become routine a little bit. So his son challenged him. He said, well, what if I don't? You know, he said, who am I? You're my dad. What do I want you to do? I want you to pick up my room. But what if I don't? Will you still love me? Right? And Pastor Mark said, Yes, I'll, I'll still love you, but my heart will be grieved. You know, when we get this relationship with God, that it just changes things. Right? That God isn't... God isn't, doesn't send people to hell. We are running at a full sprint towards it. And God is there trying to save us. He didn't make robots. He doesn't force anyone to love him. Um, so the truth is that we all have a relationship with God, whether you believe in him or not, whether you've investigated um, theology or not. I kind of started to geek out over it a little. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a blind faith guy. That's why I landed on Christianity. That God did the heavy lifting at the cross. Right? This is different than any other religion in the world. It's grace. God gives his grace. It's a gift that's unearned and undeserved by me. So when it comes to this, what the listeners um, have sent me, and then some of these heart-wrenching emails and messages that I've got of feeling like you, you just can't go on, you know, it, it, what it really is, and, and I talked about this at the last season, is the definition of freedom. It's looking for a new definition of freedom. Like my old normal, I'm so used to that if I just go back to it, then that will feel like freedom, and it's not. Because we know it's not. That's why we get in recovery. Um, being both sinner and saint simultaneously. Nadia Bowles Weber was talking about that in her book and she really does a good job of touching on this and flushing out what it means to not be a faker and to live in the light with your flaws in the grace of God and moving forward. Um, so when I play the music I play on the show uh, that's a big part of that's a big part of why because if I'm this 
right? Who am I to do this podcast? Am I a, a doctor? Am I a theologian? Am I a right? Am I a, a pastor? A priest? If there's anything I could call myself an expert in, I guess it would be in steps six and seven. You know, getting to the point where I was entirely ready to have my Savior, God, that's the words, have God remove my character defects, right? And then step seven, right, having, being humble, humbly asking in prayer for the Holy Spirit to, to help me to remove my shortcomings. That's what, it, it, you know, the text and anyway, and 12 steps says, but that, right, those two things were, were big, a big place to get to. And then learning some theology as a way to, to flush that out. You know, I mean, it's not just, um, I want God to fix me, and then I pray that God will fix me. That's not what steps six and seven are. It's understanding who this God is. It's building a relationship. Yes, building a relationship with your creator. And yes, that is possible. He's, he does exist. He does love you. He is close. And you can pray to him, and you can talk to him, and you can listen for that still small voice. You can pick up a Bible and read it and listen to him there speak to you. Being in community with other Christians, other real, transparent, non-faking believers. All right? I use that word Christian. It could mean a lot of things in this day and age in my country. Just because you say you're a Christian, right? Just because you sit in a donut shop doesn't make you a cop. But as far as being an expert theologian, I don't consider myself that. Uh, I had a listener ask, see, I'm not a total moron either, all right? In 2007, I got into iTunes U started listening to lectures at universities. They put a lot of their stuff up for free. I'm blessed and grateful to live in a time where I can sit in in, in some of the, the best schools in the world and listen to some of the greatest teachers on the planet in their subjects. Um, I've listened to countless hours because I, I drive all day, driving around the Seattle metro area for my job. Uh, I've listened to uh, if I could guesstimate, between 250 and 300 hours of uh, lectures on uh, psychology and theology uh, from schools like, uh, from teachers. Really, It's really the professors that I feel like I've, I got to hang out with, which I think is cool, right? Uh, Yale University, uh, Berkeley RTS, which is Reformed Theological Seminary, they actually have an app where you can listen to the courses on, 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 on an app, which is awesome. Um, MIT, listen to Jeremy Wolf down there at MIT on, on uh, psychology. Uh, Oxford University, Marianne Talbot, got to hang out with Marianne Talbot talking about uh, uh, philosophy, critical reasoning. 
how we all make decisions, stuff like that. Um, Westminster Seminary. Uh, I got to learn from uh, David Pallison, who's just a, I don't know, this guy's like, like, like my Yoda, right? When it comes to knowing both psychology and theology. I, I love David Pallison, Ed Welch. Um, again, I, I, I've listened to many, many hours. Did I do the readings? Some of it, not much. Um, I'll be honest, maybe 1% of the stuff that they asked me to read, I actually read. Uh, I didn't take the courses. I didn't log any credits, right? I wasn't tested. So do I consider myself as smart as a... No, I'm not. I don't consider myself an expert in any way, shape, or form. But I, I'm, you know, I got to hang out. I got to listen. And I'm very grateful for that. So realizing step six, being entirely ready to have God go to work on Russ Shaw. Because my efforts at being a, a self-savior, right, with my me-centered faith, my self-centered solutions kind of, right, I need to study the Bible because I need to get better for me, was not working. But rather, uh, trusting my Savior to guide me through, to help me where I was unable to help myself, was where I needed to get to. And it's constantly where God keeps bringing me to his presence. Like if I am so good that I can just be awesome all by myself, I have no need for God. I'm humbled in some regard that I'm kind of a disaster because it brings me to the foot of the cross over and over again. And that's part of investigating my faith. I went through the whole, you know, universalist kind of thinking like God is just, I believe that for a, for a little while, you know, studying out this, this higher power, right? Um, well, maybe God is just like all the religions are right, Russ, and, and it's all just the same. And Muslims and Christians and, and everybody's just chasing the same God. And that's not really true. Um, it's just vague spirituality is how I saw it. Like running out of gas and having, you know, asking someone for, where's the nearest gas station? And having them point, it's that way, and then they drive off. And you're like, well, how far? You're like, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so can you give me directions? It's, it's devastatingly vague. Uh, Nadia Bowles-Weber talked about, you know, she couldn't believe in this universalist worldview because it seemed that in its roots it was based on people being intrinsically good and she figured well maybe these guys don't read the paper <laughs> right there's not so what's going on in her, my heart she said is dark i would totally agree with that i get that that's absolutely true my mom paid for a therapist for me to talk to because of my low self-esteem and it it just made me a, a more confident hooligan in my younger days. Did it help me feel better about myself? Yeah, but the, the devastation I caused as a result of feeling good about me <laughs> having some of this stuff under the surface just, you know, that I hadn't dealt with. 
just being me. I'm, I'm a sinful, jacked-up human being. I, I shouldn't ought to feel too awesome about myself, right? Like, I get self-esteem. I think it's cool that you're confident. I think it's good for people to be confident in who they are. But that doesn't mean that you're God. Again, it's going back to the first step. There is a God. I'm not him. And that's why my life is unmanageable. A friend of mine bought me, uh, Leo, he's been on the podcast before. Leo bought me a copy of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which I have not totally read all of it yet. No, I haven't. It's like a big, thick book. It's over a thousand pages, something like that. I don't know. But he talks about in there um, that God delights in us. That was something that, that blew my mind, right? It's learning about this Christian God. That, you know, God came into time and space as a man and walked around among us, loves us like that, like delights in us. Nadia Bowles-Weber talked about the, you know, this, having this faith that's freeing, right? Where it's okay to be who we are, where we're at, and that God is, God is fond of us. You know, I, I love that she she was talking about that. Some interview or something. She was asked about about faith, and she said, "You know, you, you ever notice how you feel relaxed? How how there's certain people that you can get around that just being around them, you know, you know that they delight in you. I mean, being around folks like that, it, it's refreshing. It's life giving. Someone who delights in your company." As opposed to someone who scares you or someone you have to be guarded around. Or, you know, it's Christmas. Some of us get around our families and we know there's that person who's going to pick us apart, right? Or feel like we're going to get picked apart, maybe. Um, just being confident in who you are, where you're at. The fact that we are sinners. You know, we're both, we're, we're 100% sinner, 100% saint. Like that blows away a bunch of the theologies out there that say that we're good or somehow, you know, you, you get saved and, you know, you don't struggle with this and that. That's, man, that's just not true. You're on a, in a process. You struggle less. But again, we're 100% sinner, 100% saint. And God loves us right there, right where we're at. Not faking it. I remember uh, reading Nate Larkin talking about, in his book, the uh, Samson and the Pirate Monks. He's, he's talking about meeting in 12-step uh, groups, meeting in church basements, and how he felt like, why, why is that, right? Like, here's this life-giving group of people who are just transparent and honest, living, you know amongst one another struggling with some of the same issues right and it's see and that's part of the relationship that we have with God and our brothers and sisters I have a high capacity for love and kindness and I also have a high capacity for hurting people and being reckless all right so playing out our lives amongst other people honestly 
you know, letting them behind the counter is a big part of this. It's a big part of being God's kids and, and having him love us and delight in us and us right where we're at. You know, there's this social psych metaphor of the bride as, as the church being the bride of Christ. When I say social psychology, when I using that word, um, the social uh, study of the soul, <laughs> the study of the social soul. Uh, God says His church is is like His bride. But when He talks about us individually, He talks about us as kids. Sometimes childish, sometimes with the childlike faith that He loves and requires of us, really. It's a beautiful, awesome... Like, everybody is beautifully screwed up in some way. <laughs> That's what's cool about getting to know people. And being honest in community. When you know the grace of God covers you and your brothers and sisters. And so does this call for obedience. Because we're all going to obey something. That's what I learned from my addictions and my chemical romances is that I will obey something. And man, all the stuff I chose that wasn't Jesus Christ were horrible saviors. See, becoming a Christian doesn't mean you just try and do this thing all on your own. This independent, you know, cowboy kind of faith that a lot of uh, so-called Christians have, man, I pray that maybe that's part of your, your deal too. You know, I, I feel dry. I keep going to God and seeking his presence. Well, where are you at in community? Are you in some fake plastic church where you can't, you don't have anybody you can be transparent around? And maybe, I don't know, man, that's just, I think your faith needs to be a little deeper than that. I think there's a lot of churches who are end up closing their doors and that's not such a bad thing because they're not Christian. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's Romans 5, 8. Um, Luke 15, the, the lost sheep, the lost coin metaphor. You know, Jesus talked about, you know, just turning a room over trying to find a precious lost coin. Leaving the hundred sheep to go after the one that, that, you know, is stray. Lost sheep metaphor. Like God loving us like that. The running father metaphor. Some call the prodigal son. I like the running father better. If you know what I'm talking about. God has a thing for sinners. The harshest words are towards the people who think that they got it all together. Jesus says, I didn't come to save. Don't sick people need a doctor, <laughs> right? I didn't come for you who think that you got it all figured out. That should be a sobering thought. And that's, that's Jesus. That's our God. That's this great, awesome God that made us and that loves us and that does delight in us. And he does help us. And some of the struggles that I've had, again, were to just bring me back to his presence. Back to where I need him. 
back up and crawl up into daddy's lap. So if you're feeling like that, so to the listeners who've said that, that feel like, you know, you're just at the edge and you don't know if you can do it anymore and you're just so frustrated. Frustration, definition of frustration is it's birthed out of unmet expectations. And the fact that you can't do it on your own and maybe this worldview that you have that God would love some future version of you rather than you right now, right where you're at. God loves you, delights in you. Jacked up, messed up you right now. God loves that guy, that girl. That's the God. This is a great, awesome God. That's who he is. The times where I was totally frustrated and out of gas, man, I look back and I realize that that's exactly, exactly where I needed to be. It was a beautiful place to be. A beautiful place. I didn't see at that time, but a beautiful place to be. And I'll, I'll leave the show right there. I love you guys. I mean that sincerely. Um, the song I played by Volbeat. I'm going to leave the show with, with, uh, with that tune. Uh, the song is called The Sinner Is You. And that is those lyrics. It's not The Sinner's Show. Although this is a show for sinners. And saints. Right? Sinners who I want you to realize that because of the blood of Christ you're a saint. If you haven't got to there yet, you have some business to do with God. And it's not just business, right? It's, it's, it's beautiful, relational, being adopted business. And it's, and it's beautiful and it's awesome. And I want you to meet Jesus, man. Anything, my heart for doing this is that you would meet Jesus. And that he would change your life like he's changed mine. Um, I love you guys. I mean that sincerely. Uh, a few things uh, leave the show with. I hate asking for donations, but uh, I do. This is a tough season. Um, the end of the year is always hard. Anything that you could give would, would be awesome. Um, it does take money to keep this thing rolling. Prayers more than your money. Pray for this ministry. I, uh, I, I'm just this dude, right? That <laughs> does this thing every so often. And it's more taxing than you know, spiritually, mentally, and uh, anyway. So keep me in your prayers. I'm praying for you guys. Till next time. Bye. Please wake up, feel love